So thankful to be able to greet you in the name of Jesus, all he has done for us, what he continues doing. Before us, a very fascinating, to me anyway, topic, also very challenging. I feel like there's so much there, and uh, also the tendency to maybe go out and left field for some people, so uh, I want to be open if you feel I'm going too far out there. Oh, message title is The Rent Veil. We'll be looking a little bit Old Testament worship and the, the temple, uh, first of all, the tabernacle and the temple, the way it was set up. And uh, what I see is part of how that plays into how worship and, and ministry is for us today. Uh, we'll start out in Hebrews 9. It kind of gives a summary, the first verses of Hebrews 9 and, and uh, drawing some from the book of Hebrews here and also from a few other spots. I'm very much fascinated by the book of Hebrews. Uh, some depth there that uh, can go a long ways. So we start here reading Hebrews 9 verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. And there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after that, the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was gold the gold pot, and had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubim of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. And the first part of verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. And so we have here a little bit the setup of, of the tabernacle. We don't have, and I want to put up here just to help our minds a little bit, we don't have uh, the outer court, but I'll, I'll try to put the whole thing here. Just a very simple sketch. So here we have, uh, I'm just going to do this a little different. I'm not even sure just how accurate this is, but just to get us an idea here. We have here what they call the sanctuary, the priests going in there, and they had the showbread, and they had all the the uh, candlesticks, the lights they had to keep going constantly. And uh, we have here the outer court, and I could put something here, uh, the big altar where, where the animals were laid on there. It's big enough. I think they put the whole animal on there, and there was the sacrifices made. So we have... Uh, the outer court, uh, 
sanctuary. And uh, the Holy of Holies. And uh, especially, as the title is The Rent Veil, I want to focus a little bit. And I want you to be thinking, we'll come back to that some more. Why was that veil there? What was the purpose? Why did God, uh, we know that, we'll maybe look at that a little bit later also, God gave Moses a pattern. He's on Mount Sinai and he got a specific order that you make it exactly like I show you. And there's this, this veil here that separated the priests and, of course, the outer court where you have the, the Gentiles and you have the women. Uh, and I'm not sure if I'm real clear just what all took place in the sanctuary and who all was actually able to go in there. Some people here might know more about than I do. We have then, uh, as it says clearly, once a year the high priest went in there and he had blood, the blood of animals. He went in there and sprinkled that blood. And it, it was a very awesome place for the Jewish, I think, to this day, although the temple no longer exists. This, this is represents the presence of, this is where God's abiding place was, uh, in, in a symbolic way. Okay? And this is how they, the worship was. People went there, you want to get close to God, and, and we do this ministry, and we have the priests here, but there's that separation, there's that veil there. And what, what, why that separation? Why that veil? And uh, maybe I will read it, I'm not sure, and all time always gets away from me, but uh, just where it all we should go with reading this morning. Matthew 27. Most of us are familiar with this, but I want to just bring it clear to our minds. In verses 50 and 51, we have Jesus hanging on the cross and getting right down to the, the end of his life. Verse 50, it says, in Matthew 27, 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks bent. So the very moment that Christ breathed his last, the very moment that his life was over, the moment that the flesh was gone, that veil was rent. So now we go to Hebrews chapter 10. Just then look at a couple verses. We, there's, there's a context in these verses, and, and we could have, should have maybe read on in, in, in Hebrews 9, but the verses I want to look at are verses 19 and 20, and we see the, the, the context there is that the sin problem from God's perspective is taken care of. Uh, and verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say, his flesh. And so we have a new and living way that's consecrated, it's inaugurated, it's dedicated. And this morning, what I want to put emphasis on, this way has been open for me and it's been open for you. The way to the holiest of, 
of all is open for us this morning. Which means we now have access to the very presence of God which was not available. And, and if you, maybe we'll go back to chapter 9 and just went underline some things. It says, verse 7 talks about the high priest going in once a year. And verse 8 says, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time present. So this thing of the high priest going in once a year was not actually really entering into, into the Holy of Holies. It was just a symbolic uh, Jesus, we have in Hebrews chapter 6, talking him of being the forerunner of entering within the veil, the sure anchor we have. If he was the forerunner, there's a way it's been made open. And it says, uh, the King James uses here in, in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, having boldness. And that, that's a very accurate, I like to understand words by looking how they're translated and that word was translated in King James was translated boldness on down the line. Uh, so that that's what make me think it's an accurate translation. We have Spanish libertad, which liberty, which we have liberty. Another word that would work fit well there is we have confidence. But there's no reason we don't have the confidence that we can enter there. And that Jesus was the first to enter there the new and living way. So we have access to something which the Old Testament saints did not. And also looking at what it says here in verse 20, and uh, see if my understanding of it's accurate, the veil that says is his flesh. And so what this what this veil here represented that was rent, it says it was a very thick material they used, like an invisible hand that sliced that thing open. And it, I imagine there probably was possibly someone in the temple at the time that happened. And this awesome place all of a sudden was just open. It's a place that they dare not even look upon is now bare before all. And we know then, of course, uh, about 30-some years later, in A.D. 70, that temple was done away with, which that, that whole system of the temple no longer was a part of God's plan for worship. So uh, th this thought I want to leave with you as we move along here, just because we live in the New Testament era does not guarantee that we're living a New Testament experience. Just because these things have been made available for us doesn't mean that we actually are living it. There's a, the word that I like to, to use is we need to appropriate. It needs to be something that we make personal for our lives. And, and the only way we can do that, first of all, is if we have understanding what's available. If we don't understand these things are available to us, then we... Uh, won't even make first steps for pursuing them. So uh, keep that in mind here. So we, we have the book of better things. We just went through that, and that's one reason I love Hebrews. It shows the Old Testament, why they did things, and then what the New Testament is replacing, not just the shadow, but the reality, and the reality that we need to live in.
Now we're switching gears a little bit, and I want to look at what uh, I think has been called the trichotomy of humanity, which means that as human beings, we're made of three parts. And there's a verse there I'm not going to turn to. I just ask you to listen. First Thessalonians 5:23. it says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, that your whole spirit and soul and body be presented blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we have, the, this is a prayer that Apostle Paul had for the Thessalonian uh, Christians. And uh, his prayer was that their spirit and soul and body would be presented blameless. So we have there the three parts. And we have up here, we want to look at that some more. We have three parts of the temple here. And uh, maybe I'll just read a few verses in, in Hebrews chapter 8, or verse 5 especially. It says, Hebrews 8, 5, talking about the tabernacle or the sanctuary. It says, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, that he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And so uh, there's that pattern given. And that pattern we have, I tried to put it up here in a very simple sketch form. And then uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And so this is what I, my understanding is, that when God had this pattern in mind, he had the New Testament temple, which is our being, our, our person. We, within, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says our body. But in this sense, I like to think of it as, as our being, which is more than our body. And so I'd like to, maybe I'll just write in here, we have the outer court. I'll just put body here. the outer court. And here we'll put soul. And here we'll put spirit. So we have our bodies. It's symbolic of, of the temple, the outer court. Then we have the soul, which is the sanctuary. And we have the spirit. And, and keep in mind that we have a veil here or there was a veil in the Old Testament, and uh, just what that signifies. Uh, it's not too hard to understand what this is, our body, is because that's a physical part of us. We, every one of us here has a body, and we're aware of it. We wear it to a certain extent, how it functions. We have... Uh, our bones, our muscles, our nerves, our blood, our skin, and we have our brain. And uh, then from there, the separation maybe gets a little bit more complicated. The word soul can be used interchangeably with spirit sometimes, and that's not what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the word soul as something distinct from our spirit. Okay? And the soul, I would understand to be our will, and our intellect, which includes our mind. And, and 
I don't understand this rule, but I understand our mind and our brain to be two different things. The brain is, is physical mass. Our mind goes beyond just the physical mass. And, and you can't really explain, I don't think, but it's a reality. And with the mind and intellect, you have reasoning. Also, in the soul, we have our emotions. And with our emotions, uh, another word for that maybe is our desires, and our will kind of fits in there too. So that, as I understand, encompasses what our soul is. And then we have the spirit. And uh, the word soul we have, not sure I have it written down here. Uh, Maybe I'll write it down because it's part of what we're looking at. Greek word there, suche, if I'm saying that right, uh, that's for the soul. And then the spirit word, uh, the word for spirit, uh, I think I have that right, pneuma, we have like pneumonia, it has to do with air, pneumatic tires, uh, spirit, air, uh, but that's the words that's translated. And the, in the King James, you can look, I think it's like 39 times you have the word soul in English, and it's always translated from this word. And that, if I understand right, it had to do with our will and intellect, our, our reasonings, our emotions, all that encompasses the soul. And then the spirit is the connecting place with God. And and that, that's with a small letter. Spirit with a capital letter, we have the Holy Spirit. Spirit with a small letter is talking about the spirit of, of us as humanity. But that is uh, the connecting place with God. I'm not saying that there's no connecting happening here, but uh, we'll get into that a little later. This, this is where we want to connect with God. This, this is God's plan for connecting Now, there's another word I want to put up here. Again, in Spanish, I like to do that. The accent on the last one, Suchi Kos. That's the most interesting study word. And it's only found six times in the New Testament, but it, it's the root of this one you can easily see is right here. Uh, the first place we find it so in Paul's writing, we have it in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen. And if you would like, you can turn to that because it is the key to what we're looking at here this morning. First Corinthians two fourteen. It says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For there are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul is saying here that, that the natural man cannot discern the spirit of, of the things of God. It, it's foolishness and it's impossibility. This, this is the word. And, and if, if I was translating it, which I didn't, uh, I would use the word the soulish man. 
The man of the soul part of man cannot perceive the spiritual things of God. And I'd like to go on now and look at the other places it's found. Like I said, it's only six times, and we have it uh, three times in in First Corinthians 15. Doing a little study here in that word because I think it's key to what we want to be seeing here this morning. First Corinthians 15. And verse 44, I think I'll read on down to verse 47. We're talking about the resurrection here. First Corinthians 15, 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So we have two Adams here. The first Adam we know is our first parent, Adam, and the second Adam is Jesus Christ. And the first one is natural, and that word natural is tuchikos. It's a soulish. The first, first man was a soulish man. He, he operated out of this realm. And he was an intellectual man, and then his intellect got him in trouble. And that's where sin came in. And uh, the second Adam is, is Jesus Christ. He, he was a spiritual. There we have the word neuma. He was a spiritual. And, and so I guess just a, in summary here, what we have here, we can be still be in the first Adam and, and operating on the basis he operated on, or the second Adam, which is... Jesus Christ and operating from the spiritual realm rather than from the soul realm. Now, just two more times we have it, and we'll turn there quickly. First of all, James chapter 3. James used that same word, suchikos. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15, the word we find in verse 15 says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, suchikos, devilish. That word central we have in King James is, is that word suchikos. So it's a soulish. The wisdom that is from below is soulish. And it's, it's where... This envying and strife comes from. This is where envying and strife comes from when we're operating from this realm. Now to Jude, and the verse 19, we'll also read verse 18. The book of Jude, verse 18 and 19. how that they told you there should be mockers in the last times who walk after their own ungodly lust. These be those who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. So we have the word sensual again. It's the same, same word, this one right here. The, the soulish ones are walking after their own ungodly lusts, and they do not have the spirit. He says, separate yourselves from them. So that's uh, just a little bit of the, the word study of the word suchikos. So 
was a root cause of entering in strife and, and of, of basically the carnality that exists uh, in humanity. Now I want to go to John chapter 4, bringing in another concept. And we have here Jesus meeting that woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. And then the question came, she said, I perceive you're a prophet. And uh, our father said that we should worship here, and you say you should worship Jerusalem. Where is the right place to worship? Verses 23, 24, Jesus' answer here. Maybe I'll read verses 21 on down to 24. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That we're neoma. That's how we worship God. But, how do you worship God if you have this thick veil right here? And I think, again, the Old Testament priests, they're in there, they're, they're, they're called to be representing uh, the people to God. That's what priests were for. And they have this awesome thing about God, but there's this separation. And how, how can you minister? How can you do what you're supposed to do if God is behind the veil. And so we see time and time again this true worship, this true communion, this true knowing God failed and failed and failed. It would maybe not have had to, and there was many faithful people in the Old Testament, but there was this this thing, and God had it set up this way. And why did he have it set up that way? And I believe, and here again I said I might go out on a limb where it can get uncomfortable. You could think that when it's relating to God, the, problem, uh, the veil could be right here. We have the body and the soul. But the veil's not here, the veil is here. Between the soul and the spirit, there can be a veil. That veil is the flesh. That veil is our carnality. That veil is what needs to be crucified. So even though the, the way to the holiest of all is they manifest, but in my being, there can be a veil that's separating me from the, the very presence of God, and that veil needs to be crucified. And that could be maybe more complex than we understand. And I, I want to go into that a little bit. So if we could do a cross-section of this soul, we already gave what I understand to be some of the what makes up the soul part of man. But what it is about the soul that separates us from God that needs to be uh, a veil that needs to be done away with. First of all, we have a will. And we know that there's one God, and yet there is three persons in, in what we call a trinity, 
When Jesus was facing the reality of the cross, he said, Father, if be possible, let this pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus had a will that was distinct from the will of the Father. And we could, I'm not able to this morning, but we could look at uh, numerous scriptures where Jesus continually lived his will, surrendered to the will of the Father. And that's where the power was at in his life. A constant yielding, a constant being in communion, a constant wanting to and, and desiring and, and fulfilling the will of his Father as he walked here in this earth. And I would venture to say, and I know it's been my experience way too much, that as Christians, we can base our decisions more on what we want than being sure this is the will of God for me. What is that? That is a veil. That is something that separates us from God. The moment that God has a desire for me and I resist that and go my own way, then that creates a separation. And it creates a, a challenge to this relationship I have with God. So we have Jesus Christ living in the Holy of Holies. And we have that beautiful prayer that we, uh, some of you memorized. I didn't do so well. But it's beautiful. It's some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. And it, it just, that communion that was constantly there the life of Christ, how beautiful. But Jesus had his will, and it was not, there was a struggle going on. It was not really what Jesus wanted to do to, to go on through with the cross, but he did it anyway. And that, that has to be a reality for us. So the will, my will, in order for this thing to work with, with my fellowship with God, my worship of God and, and my ministry, my will needs to be submit, submitted to the will of God. That, that's, that's dealing with a sole problem that humanity has. And it takes care of it when that happens. Okay, so we're doing a cross section. Let's think a little bit about our intellect. And this, this gets a little complicated because God created us intellectual beings. And I would say God was at great risk to create us intellectual beings. He could have just made us robots where he programs what he wants, but he didn't do it that way, and, and I think we understand why. And I think he wants for us to, to want... Uh, for this morning, for me to prepare this, this message, there's some intellect involved, okay? It, it needs to be. We can't, we can't do without intellect, but for us to be effective, there has to be something much more. There has to be a divine revelation. There has to be something that comes from God. And I've asked this question already. Maybe you have too and pondered this much. Why is it that the institutions of higher learning almost consistently have moved away from God? They've apostatized. It's just the way it goes. When when men start really focusing on intellect and start really putting into gear the human reasoning, it, it just goes that way. And we do need to have understanding. And the problem is that knowledge, it's just where the knowledge is coming from. Is it something that comes from within me and, and other human beings that have been so smart? 
Now, if I was coming to Christ and I had a million or multi-million dollars in my bank account and, and I would understand the need to put my daily trust for my material needs in Christ, and yet if I know that the million, two million, whatever are there, and it, it's just, it can create a challenge for me to really trust in God for my daily needs. And it, it tends to go that way when, when people are blessed with riches. Often the, the, the trust in God is jeopardized. I said this to a person that maybe is one of the highest IQs of anyone I met. I told him one of the hardest things for humans to crucify is their intellect. Where if you have a million dollars here, if you have plenty of capacity here, and, and you learn to trust in, in what's here, then you won't, it'd be harder to throw your whole trust on God. And, and I'd say if you're preparing to go minister, if you're preparing to preach, you're preparing to go talk to somebody on the street, and what you're going to share, where is it coming from? Is it coming from here, or is it coming from here? And there's a world of difference. And in order for it to come from here rather than here, there has to be a veil that's dealt with. We do not trust in our own understanding. We have that in Proverbs, and yet we can without even realizing it. And then we have this example of Peter, and Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And some say this and some say that. Who do you say? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. My Father has revealed it to, to you. Then moments later, Jesus is telling how he needs to go to the cross. He's going to die. And Peter said, Be it far from you. And what was Jesus' response? He said, Get the, Depart from me, Satan. And he said that you don't, you're not doing the, the things of God. The things that you're looking after the things of man. So we have one moment. Peter is receiving this divine revelation from God. Next moment, he's acting upon his own understanding of things. And so that helps me to understand that I can be drawn from here, and yet if I'm not careful, I can soon be drawn from here. And so the, this, this, this crucifixion, of this, this rent veil that needs to be a reality in my life is not a once-and-done thing. It, we can think, well, I've got that veil out of the way and this is going good, and, and we soon realize it's, it's there again. The sin problem, I don't understand to be so much here, the sin problem here. The body is nothing but a servant of what the soul is, our desires, which lust comes in there. And so we have our will and we have our intellect our IQ, what, what God has blessed us with, and some have more than others. And the more we have, the more dangerous it can be, maybe. And then we have our emotions. And here again, with our emotions, our feelings. God created us emotional beings, and to be emotional about things is not wrong. But if our emotions are calling the shots where God went something and we're, because of our emotions, we're doing something otherwise. Anger is an emotion. How often have people, people because they're emotional, they're angry, 
and they do things that are contrary to what God would want. Is there not a veil between this and the Holy of Holies when we are, are angering and acting upon our anger in a way we shouldn't? And bitterness is, is like deep-rooted anger. We become irritable. Does, does that affect our, our communion with God? Does that affect our being able to worship? Does that affect our being able to minister effectively? Absolutely. Absolutely. God wants to be in a driver's seat. And if our emotions are what is causing us, and so often I think decisions can be based on how we feel, how, we are, how our emotions are acting at the time. And God wants us to live above that. That's we have the boldness, the liberty to enter into within the veil, where our emotions, uh, they're important, but they do not need to drive our lives. And then there's this part of ministry. I like to look at evangelists, and I like to look at revivals, and I like to look at statistics of certain evangelists that had so many people respond, and maybe 2% of them were faithful to the end. Uh, that's what I read about Billy Graham, and I'm not trying to knock Billy Graham. But, and there's some that it's more like 90%, and I ask, what's the difference? Just think a little bit. I was never there, never wanted to be there, thank God. But the emotional wattage you have at a rock concert, where things are so hyped up, the emotion people and, and the ones that are in charge, there's, there's just a, a charge. And they can get people to do about anything they want because their emotions are driving them to do it. And without us realizing it, it like evangelistic campaigns, we can be using some of the same methods. It, when you are ministering from here and reaching people on this level, that's the type of conversions you have. But if you are an instrument of the Holy Spirit and there is tremendous conviction going on and the ministry is coming straight out of here, then that's where you're going to get rich people, if I understand it right. So the ministry coming from within the veil... And in the Old Testament, you have a lot of formality. And so often I think formality can be that because we're not experiencing this, this deep, close relationship with God. And, and so it reverts back to that type of, of relating to God and, and, and uh, relating to those that we relate to. So thinking of the aspect of the many counseling ministry the last hundred years or so, and, and I think there's maybe some places where some of them have been effective, but depends on where it's coming from. So often when people are struggling, they have needs, and the focus is on that, and the focus is to minister right here. But I'm feeling this, and, and, and my the emotions are going haywire and, and, and I need help. And Where do I get help? And, and so we try to help them. And, and we base a lot of, of what the needs are by, by the emotions and the feelings that are there. And it can be a merry-go-round that doesn't provide solutions. We've got to go here and we've got to get people to go there.
We've got to get people get beyond their emotions and realize they need to, if there's something keeping them from walking close to God, that needs to be dealt with. And if they deal with it, then the rest of the problems are going to disappear. One time I was asked to, if somebody responded in meetings, I should go counsel that person. And somebody responded, and I went to counsel. And, and the person was going on and on about his struggles. And I asked, I'd like to ask you one question. How is your relationship with your dad? And right away, he started to argue, and it was not good. And uh, I said, well, I think if you could deal with that, it would go a long way with helping your struggles. Then I was talking to when that was his ministry, and, and uh, he was asking because he saw the young man respond and how it went and all that, and I explained. He said, it's going to take a long time to help him get over that. And I said, no, brother, the instant he does the right things, it's going to be taken care of. That's part of this thing of, of, of this counseling ministry. Often it takes a long time. We've got to work through all these things when God has a transformation in mind for us. And there's a big difference. So we go back to what we have there, the key verses to be in, in in Hebrews chapter 10, where there is the veil is rent. We do have access. We can with boldness enter into the Holy of Holies. And this to me, it's not just some kind of theology, some kind of great theory. It needs to be a way of life. And the only way my ministry can be effective, the only way I can really truly help others, if, if I'm abiding in the presence of God and he... Uh, is giving me what I need, and, and a minister is nothing more than just receiving and passing through and, 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 and passing on to others. That's what ministry is all about. Whenever there's anything that gets in the way that we do not, cannot, are not abiding in the Holy of Holies in our communion with God, there needs to be a crucifying that takes place, that needs to be dealt with, and that... Uh, so think of us as our being, that there could be a veil there, and that veil is what is the problem, and that veil is dealt with for me. And I'm trying to help someone else that's struggling. I help them deal with that veil that's separating them from God, and if that's done, then things will work. That's the way God has it designed for us. I'd like to terminate in 2 Corinthians 3, and there's a lot there, and I'm just not going to look at it all here this morning. There's a veil mentioned here, and it's a little different, yet it seems to be very similar. Here again, Jesus, uh, Pastor Paul is explaining what ministry is to be. We have been given New Testament ministers of life. And this morning I can focus my almost my entire attention. In the earlier days I did so much of this. I'm preparing for a message, and we've got to get all the information together. We've got to get it all right up here, and if we get it right, then we're going to get through to people. There's much more to it than that. And in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about the Old Testament being ministers of letter. I, I can get you a whole lot of information this morning, but if you don't have the power to make that information work in your life, it's actually going to be a hindrance. 
the ministry of condemnation, do, you, do we want that? Absolutely not. A ministry of death, do we want that? Absolutely not. And yet I can maybe have been guilty of that. We need power. And then this thing of, uh, of our knowledge, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, Apostle Paul is addressing, because that was a problem, I think, in the Corinthian church. He said, knowledge puffeth up. In other words, the more I know, the more I can have a tendency to be proud of what I know. But if I'm constantly knowing I don't know, and God, I want you to reveal, and, and I know there's a Holy Spirit, and he wants to reveal things to me that, that cannot be understood otherwise. And that's where I want it to be coming from, what my concept of God and my concept of when I open this book. I want understanding that it's Holy Spirit divine revelation that I need every time I open this book. But then it goes on down here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and talking about, so Moses is on the mount and God came down and Moses is in the presence of God and, and Moses may without realizing he's, he's God, God is just there. And he steps down and his face is just I don't know, shining like a light. The glory of God. We're in the presence of God and his glory is being absorbed. And he goes and, and, and uh, there's glory there. And the people see it and they, they don't know what to do with it. And it says that he covered his face with a veil. In verse 13, the reason for it was that Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is, to, is abolished. Maybe because it was the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and that was uh, a temporary thing. But verse 14, I don't understand that completely, and I'd like to understand it better. But the veil was there so they wouldn't see maybe the glory fading away. Verse 14, it says, But their minds were blinded, and unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away, in the reading of the Old Testament, while the veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. Thinking he's talking especially about maybe the religious leaders and in a general way about the Old Testament and the people that were insisting on keeping on with that. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this is very high language. It's beautiful. In other words, as, as we are in the presence of God, there's a transforming that takes place in us, and everyone else notices it. They take notice. And we can make a difference. Transforming power because we're abiding in the Holy of Holies, the veil is done away with, and there's there's no veil separating us. That's, a, that's the plan that God has for us as his people. We'll ask for a song.